Welcome to the Harvard on China podcast, now available on SoundCloud, iTunes and Stitcher. I'm James Evans at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies, and today we're talking to Dr. Donald Sturgeon, preceptor in digital methods at Harvard's East Asian Languages and Civilizations Department, and a former Fairbank Center An Wang postdoctoral fellow. Donald is well known as the founder of the Chinese Text Project, and teaches a course on digital methods here at Harvard. Digital methods is a developing field in the study of China that is still little understood by many in the academy, so I started our conversation by asking what we mean by the term digital humanities. Digital humanities is obviously a very broad term, um, so one way of thinking of it is as the intersection of digital, so computational techniques, and humanities questions. And what I found is that this can actually mean quite different things to different people. For myself personally, the aspect of it that I'm most interested in is the application of digital techniques, digital methods to actually approaching and finding new ways to answer or finding new information about what are basically traditional humanities questions. So one of the exciting things about this for me is that this provides both a new methodology but also the possibility of approaching questions which may not be easy to answer or may not even be possible to answer using traditional methods. So this comes up particularly when we start looking at large corpora of texts or big data type problems where we're dealing with more information than any single human being could ever actually hope to read through or process or interpret even throughout the whole course of their lifetime. So digital methods provide us with the exciting possibility of approaching these using computational methods, uh, looking at trends throughout these large sets of data. Uh, and so one of the things that you talk about when you discuss digital humanities is there's a very large range of projects as well, the sort of the macro level and the micro level. What, explain what you mean by that. Uh, well, there are lots of different types of projects. Um, so one type of project which we have very often is a sort of research question specific project which focuses on one particular question, aims to answer that or say interesting things about a particular topic. And these types of projects tend to apply certain techniques and get certain results and then additional interpretation is added to these and they result in, for example, the publication of a paper, possibly the publication of some data. Um, but they have a fixed endpoint. And then the other type of project is much more open-ended. The objective is to assemble and to collate various types of data or various pieces of material or to build various tools which aren't necessarily focused on any one particular research question but which instead are designed to be able to facilitate other people or the same people to go and answer actually different range of potential research questions with these. Um, so those are, those are two of the kinds of projects that we have. And then there's the question of how the, the large-scale view of material um, maps to the small-scale view of material. So particularly when we're dealing with big data projects or large corpora of texts, uh, one way of looking at these is analogous to the traditional scholarly interpretative method where we look at individual instances and individual examples. And the other way of looking at this, which is now possible with big data and digital humanities techniques, really involves taking a step back from the data and looking at statistical patterns and trends within it, which are extracted from the full body of material. And that's really where the power of digital humanities comes in, because this can be done analytically according to well-defined procedures, which we can look at the precise details of and analyze, uh, but can produce meaningful trends that we might not otherwise be able to notice. There's obviously a wide range, as you mentioned, of different techniques and different projects that you can do with, with digital humanities. 
which I guess begs the question of what is the place for digital humanity? You know, is it an academic field in its own right, or is it more of a, a technique by which you find an answer to a broader set of questions? Yeah, so this is a very good question, and I don't think people have um, come up with a single definite answer to this yet. Uh, at the moment, digital humanities, I think, is sometimes seen as being partly a separate discipline. But in reality, most of the techniques are being applied in ways that actually feed into traditional humanities questions. And so there's a lot of potential for closer communication, I think, between people working on digital humanities projects and people working with traditional humanities methods, particularly because a lot of these methods, from a technical point of view, don't end up with giving you unambiguous, specific answers about your material. They still require a lot of interpretation. One of the very nice things about uh, many digital projects is that they can really appeal to a wide audience, including both academics, but also people outside traditional academia. Results of such projects, uh, tools, databases, all of these things uh, can be made very accessible to a variety of audiences and different people can use them in different ways. The project that I guess you are most well known for is the Chinese text project, which sounds like you set up out of just being interested in the topic. I mean, what, what made you decide to, to start a project like that? So that's a question which has a kind of surprising answer. So my original objective here with the Chinese Text Project, which is now quite a widely used digital library and quite well known and quite comprehensive in terms of its contents, uh, was much more modest. The original purpose of this was simply as a very simple tool, a very small tool, which was going to help me with very specific research questions that I was interested in at the time. So originally, when I began the project in 2005, the purpose of it was purely to deal with one single pre-modern text, in fact, not even a whole text, one part of one text, uh, the most canons, which are a part of the Mozza, which is a classical Chinese text. And if you're familiar with this text, uh, you'll know that it has quite an unusual writing style. It's not composed in a sort of essay format, instead it's much more like a dictionary or an encyclopedia. Uh, each entry begins with one sort of headword, followed by some kind of explanation or definition or some sort of comment on that particular topic. So for me, when I was approaching this text for the first time back in 2005, it struck me, since I had a background in computer programming and databases, that this structure was actually very closely related to a database structure. It mapped very neatly onto a database format. And so what the Chinese Text Project began as was simply uh, as a method of recording this information in a way that it could be easily retrieved uh, and easily searched. So the original purpose wasn't to build a digital library, it was just to help me answer my own research questions and better understand the material that I was dealing with myself. The China Text Project has now taken off. I mean, it, it really has sort of grown into this sort of leviathanic project that I don't think you really expected it to turn into. How did it develop from, you know, obviously you, you're starting it as this very small scale project into what we now know as the large digital project that it is? Yeah, so you're right, it certainly didn't start out with a careful plan to build this enormous uh, library project. But what actually happened in the beginning was very gradual growth over the first few months. So in the initial stages, I'd set it up to handle this particular text I was interested in. But of course, as time went on, I'd become interested in other things. And the thing about this type of database project is that once you've set up the basic structure, it's very easy to add additional materials into the same framework. And doing that immediately gets you similar functionality that you already had for your existing materials. And so as I started looking at other texts, I very quickly 
wanted to add these into the, into the database and gradually added these over time. What happened after that was really a consequence of the data being available over the web. So when the, when the database was set up in the first place, it was designed as a web application, even though at the time the only expected user was myself. It wasn't intended to be something for public consumption. Um, but it was designed as a web application because that was the easiest way technically of doing this at the time. So I ended up developing it as a web application and made it freely available because there seemed to be no reason not to make this thing freely available. And after a few months of it being on the web, I started to get email feedback from people literally around the world who commented that they had found this useful in their research, they liked it, they sometimes had suggestions or corrections. And after a while, I started to get feedback that people found the site really useful, but would find it even more useful if it could have these other texts which were interesting to them, which they were working on, which were part of their research. So I gradually got these comments back and I also got contributions from individuals who had actually already typed in copies of text which they would like to be added to it. And so these were gradually added um, over the course of the next few years. But I think things really started to take off much more quickly in 2009 when there was quite a significant change in the structure of the site. So before this was primarily a static digital library project, by that I mean all of the contents of this were curated and maintained and edited by myself. People would contribute corrections, but these always went through me. And from 2009, it changed to a slightly different style of management, which was one in which users were actually active contributors to the project. So it became possible for anonymous users online to create accounts and to make direct contributions to the database themselves. And this started off very simply with simple discussion forums and things like that, but gradually over time developed into a much more sophisticated crowdsourcing system which you see today. And really since 2009 we've actually seen continual exponential growth in terms of users of this resource uh, to the point where we're now at, at something like 25,000 visitors each day. That's a huge amount of people really. This is a side project, this is not the focus of your PhD for example. Yeah. And yet it's developed into this ongoing focus of your research it sounds like in many ways. Yes, that's right. So originally this was entirely an instrumental project and really what happened is that it turned out that while this was instrumentally useful to me, it was also instrumentally useful to a lot of other people as well. It really snowballed from there. So a lot of the actual more recent development since 2009 has been partly influenced by my experiences with the earlier static format of the site. So one of the issues with the static database is that the entire design methodology is not really scalable to large amounts of material. This is particularly obvious if you have one single person like myself actually acting as the editor of all of these materials. We're now talking about a huge corpus. Um, by 2017, we now have something like 5 billion characters of Chinese in this database. Uh, I don't want to be responsible for every single character in there, especially the ones that have been created using optical character recognition. So the only way to continue this database project is to find some scalable way of dealing with this material. And so the, the approach that I've used on this uh, digital library has been to appeal to crowdsourcing, very much following the example of projects like Wikipedia. During your time here, we have had you teaching a digital humanities course through the East Asian Languages and Civilizations Department. And so at the Fairbank Centre, um, we've had some workshops in the past with Paul Viertaler and Andrew Rossi, um, building on Song Chen's previous digital history course. 
How did you take what had already been established um, and turn it into more of a formal full credit course in digital humanities? The Digital China Lab that Paul and Anthony had set up was really a major inspiration for the course. Um, so their original workshop series involved bi-weekly meetings where uh, students and faculty were introduced to um, programming techniques in Python, but also all sorts of digital techniques directly applicable to Chinese studies, extracting statistical data from text, visualization, principal component analysis, and so on. And so the goal for the course was really to try and take this and put it into a more formal setting. And the hope, or my hope with this, was that what we could end up doing in this course was not so much introducing students to what they could in theory do with digital methods, but in practice getting them to actually apply every single method which we introduced during the course, and to be able at the end of the course to go and apply these same techniques to their own actual research and practice. Because of this, a big focus of how the course was set up was considering what we didn't want to cover, what we wanted to exclude. And the reason for this is basically the complexity that's involved in these techniques. A lot of the techniques that we're applying are fairly cutting edge. Uh, they involve students installing all sorts of complex software programs and using them in various ways which they'll have to learn. And there are also all sorts of issues which may come up, issues of different platforms and compatibilities, all these sorts of things. What we don't want to be doing in the course is to be introducing any additional complexity. And for that reason at the start, one thing we did was to standardize on Chinese as being the only language which we would actually consider seriously in the course. So this allows us to exclude all sorts of things like word stemming, which are very important to natural language processing of other uh, language types, but not to Chinese. And on the other hand, to deal with issues which do come up with Chinese, like encoding, character sets, fonts, and so on. So in terms of actually structuring the course, one thing which made the course much more consistent throughout was borrowing the idea from Anthony's and Paul's workshop of having Python programming as a kind of backbone to the course, which was something which you came back to almost every week throughout the course. And the reason for doing this was really that this tied all of the individual techniques that we were going to cover together. Because this is something which, when people actually try and apply these techniques in their own research, they're going to have to use some kind of technique to actually get their data from point A to point B. And by using Python consistently throughout, what we ended up with was a course where Python wasn't actually the focus of the course, but by the end of the course, uh, everyone who participated would have obtained a good enough knowledge of Python, a sufficient level of familiarity with it, to actually be able to write the kinds of programs which they would need as humanities scholars to actually deal with their research. So the goal wasn't to teach Python, uh, it was to teach the smallest amount possible of Python, which would allow them to achieve these goals. You mentioned briefly that one of the outcomes of the um, course was to try and have very sort of tangible projects that students could work on. What are some examples of some of the projects that you, you've seen students attempt? Yeah, so the student projects, uh, the students were given a lot of freedom to choose basically whatever they liked, as long as it included some element of Python programming and some of the techniques that we covered in the course, and they were encouraged to do this to apply these to their own research. So we had a lot of really great examples of student projects in the class. Uh, one of them focused on text reuse in the Zhuangzi. So in this project, the first part was identifying text reuse, so identifying instances of similar passages, similar pieces of text within the whole text of the Zhuangzi, uh, and then identifying also 
in other texts where similar parts of the genre are reproduced or appear similarly, and mapping these relationships. Identifying this was the first part, and then the second part was a visualization of how these things went together. In fact, this was done using network graphs, uh, and we ended up with uh, an interpretation of reflections on what is the significance of this, where does this reuse come from, uh, what explains it. So that was, that was a really nice um, project. Another project which uh, we had which was very good was a project on the Hong Lo Mung. So this was quite a different project, this looked instead at relationships between characters in this play, uh, how these relationships changed over time throughout the course of the novel. Uh, and we also had in this project an analysis using principal component analysis of authorship of later chapters. So looking at whether there are statistical facts about the makeup of the chapters of the Hong Lo Mung that might weigh into the argument as to whether the later chapters were of the same or different authorship as the rest of the text. Let's say a listener is trying to put together their own digital humanities course. What are your top tips for what to do and what not to do? One of the things which I found quite inspirational actually to see over the course of the semester was how sophisticated the student projects were because a lot of the things which came up in these projects were actually things which I would have liked to done to, I would have liked to have done many years ago um, but really these are things which I am able to do now after having worked with digital methods for sort of over 10 years um, but people actually managed to produce these going from no knowledge of digital methods through the course of a semester at the end of at the end of that semester they were able to produce these really amazing results so I think one of the things that shows is how feasible it is to do these things as long as you're building on the results that other people have made available. So building on open source projects, building on open source content, and following a consistent pattern where you're repeatedly going back to something like Python and adding various bits to it over the course of a semester, it does become possible to build up to quite sophisticated, in fact amazingly sophisticated results in a short period of time. So for the last part of this podcast, um, I want to ask you about the future of digital humanities. So at the Fairbank Centre, we've prioritised digital humanities as one of our strategic priorities. Where do you see digital humanities developing in the next 10 years or so? Well, my hope is that one thing we'll see is that digital humanities increasingly become seen as part of mainstream scholarship. So not something special and distinct, but something which feeds directly into traditional research topics, traditional research questions. And I think it can feed in in different ways. So there's the exploratory use of digital techniques to kind of point us in the direction of interesting things, point us towards interesting features of our data, features of our texts, which were always there and which we can still explain and interpret using traditional scholarly methods, but which we might not have noticed if we hadn't used these digital techniques. But there are also quantitative techniques which can be used very usefully and very productively in digital humanities. And I'm hoping that in the future, particularly over the next few years, we'll increasingly see studies which attempt to use quantitative data to actually argue directly for conclusions, particularly when we're dealing with large bodies of material, such as entire corpora of texts. So things like word usage over time, semantic changes, how concerns vary across uh, large periods of time or between different bodies of material within a corpus. So I'm hopeful that we'll see a lot more of this and also a lot more engagement between people who see themselves as being primarily digital humanists and people who don't necessarily identify as digital humanists, but are actually in many cases dealing with similar concerns and questions. So one way that I think hopefully we'll see more things like this in the future is if we have more collaboration in the field. 
And I think this is something which we already see a huge amount of in digital humanities. Uh, many of these projects are implicitly or explicitly collaborative in nature. Uh, the reason that I think we need this is because we're dealing with such complex things. We're dealing with enormous volumes of data, potentially, particularly with big data studies, and we're dealing with very complex methods. So many of the methods that we apply in the course and elsewhere in digital humanities are actually, from a mathematical perspective or computer science perspective, very complex techniques. And these are not the sorts of things that everyone who does a digital humanities project, of course, wants to implement themselves from first principles. Uh, we don't want to be continually reinventing the wheel. So I think one of the challenges with digital projects, particularly dealing with large corpora and dealing with complicated methods, is how we deal with the increasing complexity of these things. And what we really want to have is some kind of division of labour and separation of concerns. And there are basically two ways of doing this, which I think are already widely used in digital humanities projects in general. And these are firstly open source methodologies, where tools, data, uh, databases, content are published under a free license made freely available where people can simply reuse these products as the starting point for their own projects. And secondly, application programming interfaces, which provide potentially very easy to use and very natural ways of integrating different uh, projects in a way which make these projects work together even when they can be maintained and produced by entirely separate distributed groups of people. So this is something which, um, in fact, you see on the Chinese text project at the moment. Uh, we're collaborating using APIs with other projects at Harvard and elsewhere, including the China Biographical Database Project and the Marcus Textual Markup Tool. Uh, so in this particular example, the use of APIs makes it possible for us to completely and very neatly separate our different fields of interest and fields of concern. So that Ctext, for example, handles the uh, transcription and preservation of textual material. The China Biographical Database handles the collation and maintenance of all sorts of complex biographical data, relational data about individuals uh, and historical events. And the Marcus Textual Markup Platform takes these resources, uh, extracts their information using application programming interface, and provides its own additional functionality, its own uh, user interface for marking up all sorts of information within these texts. And by doing this through APIs, it makes possible the collaboration in a decentralized way so that we don't all have to be repeating each other's work or copying each other's work, but we can each contribute to something which from a user perspective is acting as if it's a much larger whole. Donald, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. Don't forget to subscribe to the Harvard on China podcast, now available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other podcast providers.